Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 89, Laying Down the Law, part 2. and welcome to episode 89 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This episode is the second of a two-parter, and I am going to be turning my attention to comic books once again. Specifically, I am once again tackling comics in a non-superhero genre, which I've done quite a bit in the past, and in this case, it's comics featuring the men and women of law enforcement. I did a little bit of this back in my 80 Years of DC Comics series when I covered the Jerry Conway, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, series Cinder and Ash, although that was more of a private investigator story than a straight-up cop comic. So this time, I'm going with straight-up cop comics. Comics starring police officers, detectives, and other cops and robber types are as old as the medium itself, with one of the most notable Golden Age comics probably being Lev Gleason's Crime Does Not Pay, which was one of the most famous true crime comics ever produced, and spawned a host of imitators through the 40s into the 50s until it ran up against the seduction of the innocent. The genre would survive, and we have some great stuff coming out of the 1950s and since the 1950s, especially within that last 20 years or so. But in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the Big Two's commitment to comics that were beyond the purview of their usual superhero fare was on the wane, although they did take their chances on other genres. DC, for instance, created an entire imprint that published everything from horror and science fiction to other odds and ends, the most famous, of course, being Vertigo. And at separate points in 1987 and 1992, both DC and Marvel would publish police-centric miniseries. That's what I've been covering these two episodes. Last time around, I took a look at the four-issue miniseries The Underworld from DC, and that was from late 1987. For this episode, I'm going to head over to Marvel for 1992's Cops, The Job. Cops the Job, much like Underworld, is a four-issue miniseries that was published at a time when its company was going through a boom period. In the case of the DC book that was the late 80s renaissance when they were putting out The Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, Man of Steel, and a number of other projects that have become modern classics, in addition to establishing what for a time was a solid run of superhero titles after the mega-event that was Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
Marvel in 1992 was reaping all of the benefits of books drawn by superstar artists. And while those artists had already left to form Image and those books got their start while this one was being published, it would be at least another year and a half to two years before the market completely hit the skids, so they could certainly take a chance on this one. I would say that this series is an oddity, especially considering that there are no mutants, excessive pouches, or guns bigger than the characters throughout the comics. But to give the Marvel Comics of 1992 some credit, there was a little more variety than just mutant characters holding guns. A look at the comics out that month, courtesy of Mike's Amazing World, shows that the company was still publishing its fair share of comics geared toward children, such as Barbie, Captain Planet, and James Bond Jr., they were doing horror stuff, they were publishing Clive Barker's Nightbreed, they were having She-Hulk jump rope naked, so that would be porn. Uh, they were also relaunching their Epic magazine, that wasn't successful, but between this and the Conan magazines, they were at least keeping some of their non-superhero stuff and more adult-geared stuff in rotation. Cops the Job, the four-issue miniseries, sorry, limited series, this is a Marvel book, came out starting on April 7th of 1992, with its last issue being on July 7th of the same year. It was edited by Don Daly, with assistant edits by Tim Tui, and the two were editing the nom at that point, so they summed up the premise and the title of the title in an editor's note on the letters page of the first issue. You hold in your hand the first issue of a four-issue series, Cops the Job. When Larry Hama proposed the book, he stressed that this attempt to capture the reality of being a police officer in New York City might upset some people. It would not be a book full of, quote, false bravado and perfunctory glorification of the boys in blue, he said, but rather a real book about real people doing a real job. Being on the job in New York City is upsetting, and this fact could not be sidestepped or ignored. Well, by now you've read our first issue and you know that Larry and every other man on this book delivered. Cops the job ain't upbeat or pretty, but it is real. In fact, it's the best attempt I've seen in this medium to convey realistically the absurdity, the pathos, the compassion, and the tragedy that pack the 40 hours plus week that cops spend on the job. The job encompasses everything from the mundane to the dangerous, endless paperwork, gut-wrenching domestic disputes, gruesome traffic accidents, lost kids, vehicular pursuits, health violations, and homicides. Every situation different. Every situation stressful. A daily grind that burdens the strongest of minds and taxes the hardest of constitutions. Grueling as it is, however, the internal turmoil intrinsic to being a police officer and the danger inherent to the job, where your first tour could be your last. Bring a wide variety of individuals together and turn an occupation into a preoccupation, transform a work week into a lifestyle. While Marvel Comics is best known for its fantasy, this is by no means the first sojourn into reality. The Nam, a grunt's eye view of the Vietnam conflict and temporary natives, a first person account of life as a Peace Corps volunteer, are two of our better known forays into grit. I've never heard of temporary natives. I may have to track this down. Cops the Job continues this tradition. It's a labor of love by all those involved. Every one of the creative personnel in this book has lived in New York City. Every one of them draws. One's an ex-cop. One's ex-military. One's current military. Five shoot. 
Nobody is drawing this or writing this or lettering this or coloring this to get rich. We're all working on this project because we care about it, and that's why it's as good as it is. To the best of our abilities and within the parameters set out for us by the Comics Code Authority of America, this issue and three of that follow will convey our sense of what it's like to be on the job. So is Cops the Job a good realistic cop story in the vein of the NAM? I'll get to that, and I'll tackle that question after this. Fifty years ago, Southeast Asia became a home away from home for two million Americans as they fought in the biggest, the longest, and most controversial conflict their nation had known since the war between the states. Old enough to kill, but too young to vote. This is their story. Stan Lee presents The Nam. <laughs> Join me, Tom Panneries, as I bring you an issue-by-issue look at The Nam, the Marvel Comics series that documented the lives of troops in the Vietnam War. Each episode covers one issue of the comic, as well as the history of the war, and I also take the occasional look at movies, music, television, novels, and other culture of the Vietnam War. New episodes drop every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. as it happens. All suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Now, whereas Underworld was a four standalone stories that I covered as standalone stories, so I covered each issue, etc. Cops the Job is actually a limited series that has one story over four issues, so I'm going to treat it like that. You'll get a synopsis of the entire series then, not just issue by issue, and a full review. I mentioned that the NOM editorial team of Don Daly and Tim Tui were the editorial team for this book, but let me give you creative credits for all four issues. Larry Hama and Joe Jesco were the script. Mike Harris was the penciler. Jimmy Palmiotti was inks. Phil Felix letters. Ed Lazzolari color. And of course, the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics at this time was Tom DeFalco. Mike Harris did all four covers as well. The first issue features a shot of our main character, Mo Donegan, putting on her uniform with the face of a crazed-looking criminal behind her. It's a solid cover, although I will say that the shot of her, which shows her buttoning her shirt, also shows some of her bra, and that's a bit distracting. So when it's away, it's, it's effective, I guess. Huh? The second has a similar crazed-looking guy in the background, but shows Mo and her partner Caruso in the squad car, which has two bullet holes in the windshield. Caruso is leaning over, and Mo is stepping out of the passenger side door with her pistol drawn. 
The cover to issue three has the crazed face and blood of in the background with Caruso down in an obvious pain while Mo has her gun drawn and is smoking from ha- and it's smoking from having been fired. The fourth and final cover shows Mo leaving the precinct on the right side with her portrait on the left. I joked about the first cover in the bra, but all four dynamic pieces of artwork that feature events from the series in one way or another. I also noticed how each cover has a different background color. Issue 1 is red, issue 2 is yellow, issue 3 is green, and issue 4 is blue. And this also gives the cover some character. But let's get to the story. Issue number one is titled First Day, and we see this in the 8th Precinct, which according to the comic is located on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. By the way, this is the same numbered precinct that was used in Underworld, and is also the same precinct used on the show Person of Interest. A quick search of the New York Police Department's website shows that there actually is no 8th Precinct. Um, I'm not sure if there was at one point or another, or if the 8th Precinct is like the 555 exchange of police precincts, you know, the one that Hollywood is able to use without odd real-world repercussions or something. Anyway, on the opening splash page of issue one, we have a suspect named Jimbo being dragged up the precinct steps by two detectives named Heinzucker and Dooley, while Maureen Donegan reports for her first day. She changes to the locker room and meets her new partner, Nick Caruso, a veteran beat cop who currently does not have a partner. Their first call is a domestic dispute where Caruso manages to calm a husband and wife down, though through some unorthodox means, in fact, he performs a, quote, divorce ceremony. And this is all to show us that Caruso has been doing this for a number of years, does not follow the book. Mo, who has just graduated from the police academy, can, of course, quote regulations. It's kind of like Savick. Um, so we have a relationship where she's going to learn that being a cop is not just what she read in books. They respond to a call in front of a building in the East Village that will become central to the series. One of the people in the neighborhood has had her purse snatched and our cops pull up to see the woman in front of her overturned cart of groceries and a younger resident, Judith Bitterman, berating them for being fascists. Caruso gets a hunch and it leads to a junkie named George whom they take in but whom also leads into a dismembered corpse that is the latest victim of a serial murderer called the Eviscerator. On the trail of the Eviscerator is a local television reporter, Pilar Gonzalez, and Detective Patty McOpolin, who is in charge of the investigation and has an adversarial relationship with that reporter. Mo and Caruso leave and get lunch, where they talk about the job and the fact that Mo's dad was Liam Donegan, whom Caruso refers to as a real cop's cop. They get another domestic violence call. It's the same couple from earlier. And this time, the woman has stabbed her husband, although he claims that she didn't do anything. And then at the end of the day, they respond to what is possibly a DOA at an apartment building. The landlord opens up the building and they find a large woman who appears to be dead, especially since she's crawling with maggots. But she wakes up and it seems that she'd been in a diabetic coma for two days. Mo goes home to her mother, who has passed out in front of the television with her bottle of whiskey next to her, just like she always does. And Mo goes to sleep herself. Issue 2, Getting to Know You opens with a perp shooting up the cruiser and having shot up a grocery store that was a front for a numbers joint. They called two other officers, Pulaski and Sears, who chased the perp into Tompkins Square Park, but they don't get the collar because the perp is conveniently intercepted by Heinzucker and Dooley, the two detectives from issue number one, who were pretty much set up as douchebag opportunists and are possibly crooked as well. Mo and Caruso take care of the one guy who survived the shooting at the fake convenience store, 
and at the end of the night, they sign out and head to O'Reilly's, a nearby bar. Patty, who is also there, recognizes Moe as Liam Donegan's daughter, acts sketchy and implies that her dad was crooked before leaving. Moe decides not to drink and she leaves, but not before being hit on and shooting down Heinzucker and Dooley. After she leaves, Caruso tells them both off. Moe gets home in time to interrupt a burglar walking out of the house with her mother's television set. The burglar, who's this long-haired kid, claims that Moe's mother was zonked out when, she, when he just walked into the house. Then he drops the TV and leaves. This wakes up her mother, who had passed out from drinking yet again. The next day, there's another call in front of the building from last issue, and Judith is once again yelling at them, threatening to sue him for his encounter with the married couple in the last issue. The old woman on the first floor yells at Judith to shut up, and her friend Benny, who's a very large man, tells her not to talk that way to Judith. Judith calms Benny down, and Mo lays into Judith about the lawsuit talk before they're called to assist but with evacuating a burning building. Caruso helps people on the fire escape while Mo sees an old woman screaming something about saving her babies. She rushes into the building and discovers that the babies are two birds. She saves them and they head back into the building where Judith is being interviewed by Pilar Gonzalez and is doing her cops are fascists bit. But then she accuses Caruso and the NYPD for not working hard enough to capture the eviscerator. Caruso interrupts to ask Judith why her knowing two of the victims doesn't show up in the reports. Pilar tries to interview Mo about the lack of compassion on a male-dominated police force. The old woman from earlier yells at the commie creeps who are outside and interrupting her stories. Then she turns up the volume on her television. And in a two-page sequence, the eviscerator enters her apartment, kills her with a cleaver, rips out her entrails, and carries her up the stairs of the building while the cops, journalists, and residents argue outside in the street. The issue ends with the old woman's body being thrown from an upper floor and landing on top of Moe and Caruso's cruiser. Issue number three, entitled One Slip, opens with Moe and Caruso breaking up what appears to be a mugging, although the victim knows one of the perps and one of them takes her baby and runs off with it. Caruso manages to get the baby while Moe, after being taunted by the other perp, almost shoots him. After the arrests, Moe is shaken up but returns to the precinct in time to see a Pilar Gonzalez newscast about how the commissioner's office has offered a promotion to whomever captures the eviscerator. Moe and Caruso are called once again to the residence of the couple from the first issue, and this time they're both dead in the bathroom. It seems that she was going to electrocute him while he was taking a bath, and she would have gotten away with it if she hadn't slipped and fallen into the tub herself. The next night, Moe is Caruso over for dinner. They're joined by Father McCarthy, who tells stories about Moe's dad. While they're eating and watching TV, Pilar Gonzalez has yet another report about the eviscerator and is interviewing Judith, who has no comments. She presses and Benny says, Didn't you hear Judith? She said no comment, and grabs the camera. Moe looks suspiciously at the screen. Two days later, Moe and Caruso respond to a call, but they are dismayed to find that Heinzucker and Dooley have vultured it. Dooley swipes some cash that was sticking out of a purse while Heinzucker discovers a tape recorder and starts talking like he's doing his job perfectly ethically. Later, Moe and Caruso go to Patty's office to tell them that Moe thinks that Benny is the eviscerator. Patty tells them that they cleared him when they began investigating the connection to that area. He's classified as mentally retarded, and his psych profile suggests that he's incapable of violent ingression. 
They then are interrupted by a call to the building, and Patty warns them that Pilar Gonzalez is actually already on her way there. The call, at least Pilar can tell, it might be a hoax, but the cameraman is then attacked and stabbed by the eviscerator, and it looks like Mo is right. It is Benny. In Benny's apartment, two officers are checking out the fridge and are finding some nasty things there, but they're not sure what the call was about because it doesn't seem like a crime is in progress. The neighbors who called in the complaint came into the apartment to see the fridge, and they note that Benny's brother Phil had put the lock on the door. Meanwhile, Pilar goes looking for her cameraman, Jerry, who is currently being dismembered. Mo and Caruso arrive at the building, and Mo gets suspicious when she sees that the doors are unlocked. They head in, and Mo draws her gun on Pilar. Then Benny grabs her, and when Caruso enters the room, another person as big as Benny stabs him in the gut. Pilar smacks Benny across the face with her flashlight, and Mo shoots the guy who stabbed Caruso. At that moment, Heinzucker and Dooley arrive to put several more bullets into him. The guy they killed is Benny's brother, Phil, who was the eviscerator. The connection to Benny was that the victims had all bothered him and Judith, and Phil was trying to take care of his brother like his mom told him to. Outside the building, Patty advises Heinzucker and Dooley to get their story straight regarding killing Phil, while he congratulates Mo and Caruso for their hunch paying off. But Mo is on the ground with Caruso, who has died from his stab wound. Issue number four is called Repercussions, and it opens with the events of last issue as told by Heinzucker and Dooley, who make it seem like Mo was helpless and they were protecting her from being stabbed to death. After all, they, did, they shot Phil in the back. Their stories lined up and it doesn't look good for Mo, who's on the phone with her mur- worried mother. She's also being told that she has to go to the hospital to make sure that she's treated for shock, and that's when Patty walks in. Meanwhile, Heinzucker and Dooley are being questioned by Internal Affairs, who tell them that the burglary from the previous issue was an integrity test, and there was a marked $20 bill in the house that they investigated. Heinzucker doesn't have it on him, but Dooley does, and Heinzucker is not beneath letting his partner get into trouble. Dooley goes off, but is interrupted by Mo, who screams at them for putting the blame on the for the eviscerator shooting on her. Heinzucker puts his hand in Mo's face and begins to walk away, and she knees him in the groin. Mo is then dragged away. A couple of days later, Mo and a number of cops attend Caruso's funeral. A drunk Heinzucker shows up to berate Mo for getting Caruso killed, getting him suspended, and then says that she got her father killed as well. Officer Sears interrupts him and decks Heinzucker just as he about is about to call him the N-word. Pilar Gonzalez, who is covering the funeral, gets all of this on tape, but as a present to Caruso, gives Mo the tape of that footage and decides not to run it. Two weeks later, Mo is with the psych evaluator and she is cleared to return to duty. Later at her house, Patty shows up to tell her that she's not getting a promotion, but she's getting her choice of assignments. Patty says he can pull some strings and should have been pulling strings, but she tells him that she wants to be able to have a career on her own terms, not because of her father and her connections. Patty says that her dad was proud and he wouldn't take a loan from him to help pay for her school and other things. Mo asks if that's what Heinzucker meant and Patty says not to pay any attention to him. He offers to get her a nice assignment in an easy precinct, but she doesn't want to jockey a desk. Which is what ends up happening. Mo is buried in paperwork but then gets the chance to go out on a call which turns out to be a rich woman throwing a television into her husband's hot tub, although she claims they're pretty vicious dog knocked the TV into the hot tub. They then have to help a rich guy get out of a stuck elevator. The guy berates her and that attracts the dog from the apartment they were just investigating. When the dog lunges the man, Mo shoots it dead. Three days later, 
She is at the 8th Precinct and is on patrol. Patty sees her and asks her how she's doing, but they're interrupted by Judith, who is doing her usual bit. Mo shuts that down right away and then heads off on patrol with Patty saying, I guess I was wrong about you, kid. You do belong here. <laughs> okay. So, in the words of His Excellency Trentus Magnus, what did I think? I really enjoyed this. Uh, and I think that I enjoyed this because it was different than most of the television shows or movies that I've watched over the years involving the police. Granted, the number of shows and movies I've watched is pretty small. But the ones I've seen often involve detectives and not uniform beat cops out on patrol. In fact, I'd say that the movies or TV shows that I associate with beat, cop, beat cops are probably the Police Academy series. So at least to me, this is a different perspective, and we have a story that is actually built on some very familiar tropes. The rookie cop from a cop family trying to prove that she can do this on her own, the partner that's an old vet, the crooked detectives, and a major case they are all involved in. And yet this doesn't feel like the parade of cliché that I just made it out to be. Hama and Jusko give the series a central crime that feels very appropriate for the time. In fact, Jeffrey Dahmer, who had been arrested about a year before the series came out, is mentioned at one point. So I have to believe that they were drawing from that. But unlike, say, a Silence of the Lambs type of series where two main characters are the ones investigating the killer, Moe and Caruso wind up in the middle of it because it's all taking place in their usual area. Plus, while they're on hand for a few of the killings or discovering some of the victims, Patty is the one who's the actual detective and they're sent along to the next call when it's time. That, to me, says that Hama and Jusko did their homework in writing this, and it speaks to the fact that they also took time in crafting the book around its characters and not just its crimes. I mean, I like Seven a lot, and I think that the characters that Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt play are well-written, but that movie wouldn't be half as interesting if David Fincher hadn't structured it around the serial killer and his deadly sins crimes. And it's actually pretty challenging to center this around the two characters because that means you can't rely simply on the provocative nature of the serial killer plot to mask thin characterization. Mo is, of course, the main character, and the creative team does a good job of making you root from her from the very beginning of the very first issue. She's not a weak person by any means, so this isn't one of those timid little girl toughens up stories. In fact, she has an enormous amount of life just weighing on her, and they do a great job of showing this from the start. Mo has to deal with the fact that her father was a police officer and the job more or less killed him. She has to deal with the fact that her mother has crawled into the bottle. And she has to deal with the job itself. All the while, they also get across that she's a cop because she wants to be a cop and that she wants to be a good cop. I can tell that there's a decent chip on her shoulder, but not one that gets completely in the way of her making the right decisions or choices. And while I'm sure that someone could probably debate me on this, I think that Mo is a well-written female character, especially because of the way that she interacts with the men around her. Caruso is written as an older guy who is going to be her teacher in a way, as time, she's a, he's overprotective at times, but they make him likable in that he doesn't talk down to her, he doesn't belittle her in the way that like Heinzucker and Dooley do. Moreover, in the times where he is protective of her, it's when she's not around. The scene at the bar, for instance. Patty also comes off as a bit of a dick, at least when we first see him, but then you realize he's less of the type of dickhead that Heinzucker and Dooley are, and more of a Harvey Bullock type of jackass. Seriously, though, Hama and Jusko spend four issues giving depth and well-roundedness to very common police character tropes, 
and they should be commended for that, especially in a period, the early 1990s, where people were used to stuff like the Lethal Weapon movies and a lot of their knockoffs, where the actions cops were involved in went way above and beyond what a regular cop saw in his or her everyday work life. The people that they encounter in the neighborhood are a bit less developed, but I do like how they are used as ways to bring levity into what's a serious situation at times. This is 1992 Greenwich Village. This is in the middle of the Dinkins administration, so you're talking about a city that was on the rebound. Rudy Giuliani does get a lot of credit for the way New York cleaned up in the latter part of the decade, and especially for the way Times Square went from basically a prostitute and porno theater-ridden cesspool to a Disney-fied theme park. But Giuliani also took over initiatives that Dinkins had started during his one term, a sizable one of which was tackling the crime and homelessness problems. He increased the size of the New York City Police Department, and that, accompanied by the steady decrease in the crime rate, began to change the city's fortunes. Now, this is to say that Giuliani doesn't get credit for New York's turnaround, but I did want to put things in their present. New York through the 70s and much of the early 80s was pretty bad, and by the time you get to Dinkins, the transition out of that is really starting to happen. Granted, this means that the real crime and, quote, terrible neighborhoods are starting to move out of the center of the city into some of the outer boroughs. And there certainly were issues that Dinkins did not respond to well. The violence in Crown Heights, for instance. But what you see here is the beginning of the end for the grimness and the griminess of a place like the village or other neighborhoods such as Chelsea or Hell's Kitchen. Moe and Caruso are patrolling an area in Manhattan that's known as Alphabet City, and that's part of the East Village. In fact, the building that they keep getting calls to go, where Judith and Benny and all the main characters, kind of the main citizens live, is on Avenue A. It's right near Tompkins Square Park, which four years prior to the series publication was the site of riots that came about when the police tried to evict its homeless population. Alphabet City did start to gentrify in the 1990s, so the idea of a neighborhood in transition is a good one, and they don't portray it as completely bombed out like, say, you would have portrayed the Bronx in the late 70s. But among the old residents and new people moving in there, there's still this layer of crime. We've got junkies, we've got people running numbers, and we have other sorts of crime, including these grisly murders. The Eviscerator murders are really sick, too. The idea that Phil was stabbing people and then taking them back to his apartment and gutting them? We even have this one panel in issue number two where he actually holds the intestine of the old lady on the first floor. And that particular scene is done extremely well. Harris and Palmiotti draw a sequence of about three pages where they use a six-panel grid and have three panels on the left being this bickering between Judith, Moe, and Caruso, as well as an interview by Pilar, and on the right, they have the old woman's murder, and all we get in terms of dialogue from it is the television blaring a Scrubbing Bubbles commercial at top volume. The irony, right? And while I'm surprised that they got away with entrails being shown in a code-approved book, so this is the early 90s and not the late 1950s, the entire murder sequence is shown in one of those great your mind will fill in the blanks ways. You have Phil, who is wearing surgical gloves, grabbing her hair, the remote flying out of her hand while she has a shocked look on her face, the bloody cleaver going up, a shot of her bloody ankle with her slipper, and one of her hair curlers falling to the floor, a shot of her intestine being held up with the scrubbing bubbles on television in the background, Phil grabbing what looks like a tissue or a paper towel or something, and then six panels on the right-hand side of a page where he's dragging her corpse upstairs. 
holy crap too the fact that these two are side by side works even better than had they been on a television show where you cut between them in fact i'd venture to say that if you shot it that way for a television show it might not work as well and I would say that it would be more effective if you staged it as one scene where your focus is on the cops and the journalist and the murder is happening in the background. Like you have them all in the front and the their arguments going in the foreground, but like through the window you see this murder happen. Like maybe in shadow. I mean, just be scary, especially able to play with the idea that the viewer could or would wonder if they saw what they think they saw all the way until the body falls out into the police car like snippets of it like did i really see that did i really see that boom it falls that would be really 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 effective if you were shooting this as a television show or movie caruso's death in part three hits home especially because of the way that heinzucker and dooley weasel their way out of any blame for it by making it seem like it was moe's fault I do like that Hama and Jesco don't go the route of this man's death makes the woman stronger with Mo because you saw her confidence right from the start. And she also doesn't return to the East Village in 8th Precinct because of Caruso's death. Rather, it's because she wants that assignment and she knows she belongs there. At the same time, it does show the reality of the job. Furthermore, Caruso's death comes from his mistake, which is why the title of the issue is One Slip. Before they head into the building, Caruso tells Mo that they will split up, and she starts quoting regulations back at him, as she tends to do, and he says, Get real, Mo, this ain't Hill Street. That's what allows Phil to sneak up on Caruso and stab him in the stomach. So in this one mistake, this one slip, she winds up learning about how dangerous the job can be, and then how others will try to screw you for their own benefit. In the end, she's no, she's more no-nonsense than she was in Issue 1, but not because of the events in Issue 3. We had already started to see that happening. So I'm glad that the character arc actually had some nuance among all the very typical cop drama stuff. The artwork is actually really good. Mike Harris seems to be taking his cues from people like Art Adams. Palmiotti inks him very well. I've seen Jimmy Palmiotti's inks on Mike Harris's pencils a couple of times now. And the funny thing is, is that, like, I've seen other Mike Harris artwork that isn't as great. Maybe it's rushed or what. But here, like, it's like they took their time with this or what. It's at the, they're at the top of their game here. Each character is distinct. The action is dynamic. The funny bits are animated. And it complements the script very well. I'm of the opinion, however, that perhaps the brightness of the coloring does take away from the artwork a little. And that might be because of the paper it was being printed on, which is somewhere between Baxter paper and newsprint. The paper, I guess, is chosen because of the way the colors popped, but there isn't a lot of depth to the coloring, and I think a layer of grime from, like, old-school comic paper could have actually helped this. Issues of the NOM from around this time do sometimes have the same problem. So it's nothing on the colorist. It's more the paper, if you could believe that. Plus... You're doing, still doing hand coloring, the, the filtering, some of the other things that uh, would start to come into play really uh, in, in more modern comics. You're not seeing that as much, and this is a Marvel thing. So again, uh, you can't lay it on one people. It's just kind of the style of the time. Now, before I go, the one other thing, speaking of the NOM, because this is the same editorial team, um, I do want to point out that there actually was a letter column. I mentioned the um, letter column in the first issue with the editorial note. And they had a couple of things that, that listeners to my podcast about the NOM 
would understand um, or would be familiar with in that in the nom there are nom notes, which are basically um, terms that are familiar to the military that they define. So here we have a glossary of cop terms. So I'll read the glossary from issue one. A bag is an un, a uniformed officer. Bus is an ambulance. Central is the dispatcher. Color of the day is a colored headband worn as identification by plainclothes officers. 8 Charlie, the numeral 8 designates precinct. Letter code Charlie designates sector. Fourth estate is the press. Ganja is marijuana. Hype is an intravenous drug user, also a junkie. Lou is lieutenant, ammo, modus operandi, or method of operation. A 95 tag is a tow tag to identify dead bodies. OD is an overdose. Skell is a lowlife. And there are radio calls. 104 is confirmation. 1034 is assault in progress. 1052 is a domestic dispute. 1054 is an injured person or an ambulance case. 1091 is a non crime corrected. 1098 is resuming patrol. In practice, the 10 prefix is often dropped during transmissions to make conversation easier. Issue threes has a couple things. 8 Henry is the same precinct of a different sector. Uh, a gag order is the order of silence about the subject of an investigation. A homicide is an official police term designating murder. IAD is internal affairs. OD is an over, overdose psych services, the psychological unit of the police department that evaluates the mental stability of police officers, and 61 is a complaint report. 2, 3, and 4, though, have letters, and it's interesting because, you know, they're not, they're not letters um, necessarily about the comic because usually back in the day, you'd take about four issues to get to the letter column about the first issue. But what they did was they said, and I'm gonna read what uh, Tim Tu and Don Daly wrote. It's difficult to do on a limited series to have a letters page. By the time letters are received concerning the first issue, the second issue has already left the house. Faced with this, we decided to do something a little different. We contacted members of urban police units throughout the United States and asked them each how they came to be on the job. All the officers spoken with are currently on police forces serving in New York City and Chicago. On a daily basis, each faces a number of potentially dangerous encounters, from the domestic disturbances that all too often explode into violence, to drive-by shootings which turn up neither suspects nor motives, to criminals with superior firepower. These things and more are what the contemporary law enforcement officer must continually face. Let's begin with George, a police officer in Manhattan. He says, the way I became a cop was back in college. There was this big recruitment campaign going on and I took the test not really knowing what I wanted at the time. I was kind of cruising through life, going to school for the sake of going to school. I took the test, got into the academy and ended up getting on the job. I've been at the job for 18 years now. Right now I'm working in the area that encompasses the 7th and 9th precincts down by Tompkins Square Park. It's pretty harrowing. now." As I noted, this is the area that's in the comic. I remember once there was this woman. We came into the room and there were, she was in the corner. There was no question that the maggots were growing on, out of the old woman's body. Not a dog or anything else in the room. We believed she was dead. What else was there to think? But then she, when she was examined by a doctor, it turned out she was alive. Barely, but alive. It was really weird. 
So my point is that things in your book really do happen and even stranger. It's interesting that this became part of the plot. So clearly they were also kind of going to these guys for stories that they could put in, in the issues. That's pretty cool. Next up is Rob, an officer from the Bronx. He says that personally it was the need to help people that got me into the police work. However, unfortunately, where I'm based, I don't often get the chance to help people. In my precinct, it's guns and drugs, just about every call. You rarely get the opportunity to help anybody. You're seeing people at their worst. Just the other day, this guy was sitting in the chicken place and a bum ran in and stole a piece of his chicken. The guy turned around and shot him in the head for stealing a chicken bone. Shows the quality of life, or rather what they think the quality of life is. Shot him in the head, dead in the street. Once in a while, you do get the person who says, God bless you, thanks for being there. And I think it kind of helps to make it all worth it. But still, this kind of acknowledgement is rare. What you basically get in my precinct is a man with a gun, or a narcotic sale, or a domestic dispute. Just people at their worst. The third is Jim, an officer from Chicago. He says, I've always been interested in law enforcement. However, I should say that when I first joined, things were different. Today, they're getting tougher, the gangs and such. It's a lot more dangerous. You have to protect yourself more, at least compared to 20 years ago. The gangs can simply get better weapons than we are allowed to carry. I'm not sure what can be done about this. Maybe stricter gun control laws, maybe allow the police more firepower. But really, I don't know. It's a problem. And our last for issue number two is John, our second officer from Manhattan. He says, a few things prompted me to become a police officer. However, what I really did for me was that my neighbor, he was a police officer. I was going to college, working my way through, and he came up to me one day and said, John, if you're looking for a career of some sort with stability and good benefits, then look into the police department. Just take the test, he said. You don't need to accept a position, but at least you'll have the option. I said okay and took the test. I joined at the youngest age possible when I was 20. Why? Well, the salary at that time was better than average, and you can retire after 20 years. But basically, I figured that if I didn't like it, I could always quit and go somewhere else. I know that a lot of people join the force wanting to help people, and that's fine. But what I've found happens when officers join the force in NYC with that attitude, it kind of gets thin after a while. It's because the city, in this city, a lot of people are beyond help or worse, don't want help. I'm not saying that the officers at NYC don't want to help people. Just yesterday, a 10-year-old kid was hit by a car in front of me. Helping him made me feel really good, and there are a lot of things out there that make a police officer feel good. But how can you justify in one precinct, which covers about one square mile, 120 homicides in one year. I don't think the entire country of Japan has that many homicides, but we have it in one square mile. How can you justify that? You simply can't. In issue number three, this issue has the first of a two-part letter page, so they have a few of the letters that we received, and then as they did last issue, they'll have some cop stories. So... Um, Tabitha Jones says that she enjoyed the first issue. She, we, they portrayed the characters as real people doing a real job, not idealized automatons. And they, she liked Mo. She said, so many writers just write their female leads of, as either whimpering silicone bunnies waiting to be saved or guys in drag. Please keep up the good work. There are few, so few well-written comics out there these days. David Frost, who was the deputy U.S. marshal, who was the deputy U.S. marshal from the District of Maryland, says a member of law enforcement community myself. I can appreciate the extensive research the writers must have undertaken to be so accurate. The book is entertaining, well drawn, and well paced, and covers everything from being on duty to the life at home. It's about time the profession was faithfully represented in fiction. Jason Hunt. 
writes in, he says he's a police officer in Ohio, an officer, I should add, who hasn't read a comic book in 15 years. However, I was with my son at a local comic shop when I saw your book, and as a spoof, bought it. While I thought it would end up in my son's room at the bottom of a large stack, I kept it, but planned to buy my son his own copy for the next trip to the comic shop. Thanks for portraying us in a strong and realistic light. It's rare these days, far too rare. And they say the creators of Cops the Job have expanded a considerable amount of force of energy imbuing each character with the realistic integrity your letters speak of. Thank you for letting them know their detail was worth it. But now let's continue our dialogue with active members of the urban police forces. So last issue, they heard some of the motivations for joining the force. This month, they probed deeper, asking officers of urban police forces to share with us some of the more difficult experiences they've encountered on the job. By the way, before I get to these two, uh, if you hear a lot of noise, a thunderstorm is passing. So that's all the fun background noise on this episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. Yeah. Thomas H. from Boston says that one of the most disturbing encounters he's ever had was a teenage suicide. A 19-year-old student who, with his belt, hanged himself in the basement of his dorm. It really dug into me. He died on a Friday night, but wasn't found until the following Tuesday morning. He had locked himself in a basement washroom. The room was hot and damp. The pipe he hung off was actually dripping water. I can still smell it, which was probably the worst, the smell. It was that. The teenager hanging there, neck broken, with all the other officers walking around, that really disturbed me. Probably profound as anything I've ever seen. Mike S. of the NYPD writes in to say, It happened last summer during a blackout in Lower Manhattan. There was a fire in one of the Con Ed Transformers down on Pearl Street. All the Lower Manhattan was screwed up that day. I was working in Lower Manhattan. I was walking with some other officers, and we saw a guy sitting on the edge of a roof. What translated into was there was an emotionally disturbed individual, what we call a jumper, threatening to jump. So we called for emergency service, who were the guys who come and put on belts and ropes and anchor themselves to anything they can in order for them to attempt to talk that person down. By the time they arrived, a lot of other officers had arrived, but I was the only supervisor at the scene, so they asked me to come upstairs with them because they needed to have a supervisor present. Myself and these three guys from emergency service went up, and when we got to the roof, they tied themselves off. Then the emergency service guy, who was close to the jumper, began walking toward him. As he did, the jumper began to lower himself down out on the outside of the roof. At that point, I doubted he was going to be saved. We backed off and began to talk to him, and at some point, he actually did begin to pull himself back up until his head was just over the edge of the roof. And then he just let go. He fell to his death. Down below, they were in the process of deploying an airbag, but hadn't finished. They simply had to get out of the way because he became a missile. I was a matter of feet from this man. I was able to look him in his eyes. I would say that had a pretty profound effect on me. Issue four has one, two, three cop stories and two letters. Uh, the letters are from Paul Simon Levy of Manchester in Great Britain. He says that long last, the publication conveys the feel of the job. He says, I am serving as a police officer with the Greater Manchester Police Force in England and have encountered many books, magazines, articles, programs, and the like, and all have been disappointing to say the least until I read with pleasure Cops the Job. Only the police terms establish any difference between our services. People are the same the world over, and so therefore are the situations I have so far encountered in my service. I have worked with a Heinzucker and Dooley, but fortunately there is a little of the Caruso in most of us so that we can take care of the Donnegans as they appear in our midst. 
Patrick O'Brien from Mitchell, Indiana, writes that he really liked the series. He asked if it would be continued. He talks about like what you could do uh, with an ongoing series. And they said, unfortunately, at present, uh, there's no plan to turn this into an ongoing. However, it doesn't mean it won't happen. The response to the book has been overwhelmingly positive. In the meantime, they want to thank Larry, Joe, and the rest of the creative team, Joe, Mike, Jimmy, Phil, and Ed, for making Cops the Job possible. And uh, they also want to thank Michael Golden for his excellent covers. Oh, I thought Mike Harris did the covers. Wow. Yeah, that does look like Michael Golden. So, my bad. Michael Golden did all the covers. I should have known this. They're really good, too. Darren Alk for his logo design. Through them, we saw a side of police work often hidden from the public eye. Thank you one and all for showing us what it's like to be on the job. And now for the last time in the series, they're going to talk to cops. Uh, this time they're asking a new batch to share the most memorable experience they've encountered on the job. So, Tommy B. from New York. It was around 1983 during that really big blizzard in Forest Hills, Queens, and we had just put our snow chains on. What a fiasco that was. Because of the snow conditions, they didn't want us driving around. They wanted us to stay in one spot. When we got a call, we would go and then return to that very spot. Everyone had to stay in their sector so that if someone happened, we'd be there. Anyway, a baby was choking on its tongue. When that happened, he had bronchitis. Uh, he had bronchitis or pneumonia or something like that. They had given him medication. The baby started going into anaphylactic shock and it started choking on its tongue. I myself am allergic to penicillin, so I kind of know what the feeling would be, and I also knew what to do. We got there, and the guy I was with, who must have had about 15 years on me, he didn't know what to do. If it wasn't for me, the baby would have died. I wound up sticking my pinky down, pulling the tongue forward, and giving mouth to mouth for a couple of seconds until the baby started breathing again. We then ran the baby downstairs and were ready to bring him to the hospital when the ambulance pulled up. I would have to say that that was one of the most gratifying experiences I have ever had, and it happened at the beginning during my first couple of years. Robert S. from the NYPD says, There was this little old lady that hung herself in the doorway of her apartment. She was just right there. When you walked into the door, you almost bumped into her. It was sad. Her apartment was immaculate. It had two and a half rooms. When you walked in the doorway, you'd walk in about three feet, and there was a closet, and the lady had hung herself from the hinge of the closet with a piece of rope. To the left was her bedroom, and to the right was the living room, which led to a small kitchen. Like I said, the whole place was immaculate. Nice shiny wood floors, white walls, just really clean. It was like she had to kill herself, but she wanted to leave a really clean house. But what made it so hard to stomach was just to get into the bedroom or the living room or the kitchen. You had to pass inches from her, and you could smell her because she had been dead for about a week. This is one of the things that really stuck in my mind. Doesn't really give me nightmares, but caused me to have trouble sleeping for a really long time. And finally, Eddie S. of the NYPD says, One time I thought I was driving out of the line of fire in a crossfire and instead was driving right into it. The car windows on my right and left were being blown out. I threw the car into what I thought was reverse, but the car was still in motion and it locked the car into park. Meanwhile, the windows are breaking and people are running. It looked like Godzilla was stomping around the way the people were running and screaming. It was about 9 o'clock at night, a good hot summer night. I ran out of the car because I couldn't move in the car anymore and got my gun out and began looking around to see what I could do to get out of the line of fire when I realized that I'd left the key in the car and the car was running. 
I turned, realizing the car could be stolen, ran back through the gunfire and jumped into the car. The gunfire had slowed down a bit, but not completely. I called into the radio to Central, telling the girl, shots fired, shots fired in Columbia and Lorraine. She asked, what unit is this? And I heard myself scream, it doesn't matter, just send the cars. And everybody came, scattered. But nobody saw a thing when it was done. Thankfully, no one was hit. Several windows were blown out and a whole bunch of cars and bullets in the doors, but that's it. And in the end, no one was caught, but then that's real life. So yeah, I mean, even the letter columns make this series like really, really memorable in some way. I recommend tracking down this series. Uh, I found this in a 50 cent bin and the entire thing cost me two bucks. This is obscure random comicness. It's not on um, Marvel Unlimited to my knowledge. It's never been collected into trade it's not even on comiXology it's just and it's a shame because this is really worth reading um furthermore i'd venture to say that it and underworld would both be worth continuing especially if the creators would be able to get the rights to the characters and series i can't imagine that it'd be hard because these don't feature either company's main characters and they probably aren't hot properties so could like hama and company take this to idw or boom or image or and do like another limited series or graphic novel or something Maybe a digital-only comic? Mike Harris, who, by the way, retired from the United States Army in 2016 at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, is still out there. I know Jimmy Palmiotti's schedule tends to be really full. He kind of retired from inking, uh, and he really focuses on writing. But surely someone of that team, if they're interested, has the means to get this together. Then again, I'm probably dreaming and I'm the only person who has read this or Underworld in recent years. But I will say that there's a place for police comics. Greg Rucka wrote Gotham Central for DC, which is outstanding. He also did this excellent series for, um, I believe it was Oni or Image. Let me look. I got the trade right here. Let me see. It's Oni. <laughs> Maybe Image picked it up at some point. I don't know. But anyway, Oni. Oni. Um, he did this series for Oni Press called Stump Town, which uh, you can pick up and trade, which is really, really good. I'd also recommend this series called The Cross Bronx by Ivan Brandon and Michael Avon Emming. Brian Michael Bendis' Sam and Twitch comics. Um, I, I would also recommend um, Torso, because that's one of my favorite Bendis comics. In fact, I like... Bendis is coming over to DC. I don't think the stuff has really hit the shelves as of my recording this. I think we're a week or two away from his Man of Steel series. And he's talked about bringing Jinx back, um, like kind of having his own little imprint there. I'd like to see what Bendis, if he can kind of recapture his old style of like his classic non, non-superhero non stuff, what he would do with a modern day, like with like a Cops the Job type of comic. I, I'd like to see if that if that would be, how that would work. Because I thought he was really, really good with it. I liked Sam and Twitch. I like Goldfish and Jinx. They have shown their age in recent years. But Torso is a masterful graphic novel. It's so good. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hot and cold on his superhero stuff. But I think if he should take a crack at this genre. But in the meantime... Hunt this down in the bins. Hunt Underworld down in the bins. It's it's worth the $2 you might, or dollar, you might end up paying for it. Even if you find it in a dollar bin, it's worth 4 bucks. I mean, uh, just take it, enjoy it, and come back next month for another episode uh, where I may be talking about the vacation I'm going on. I'm not entirely sure exactly what I'm going to be covering, but it'll be there in, in July. So until then, keep checking out the new blog, the blog for new stuff. 
You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Everybody, everybody.